0: Welcome to the Union News podcast. The UK's only One things union show produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode why the department for education's decision to cut funding for union learn makes no sense and the chances of achieving a change of heart plus mel sims thought for the week and josiah mortimer's radical roundup Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and in this episode, we're going to focus majorly on skills, skills, learning, knowledge, upskilling. A new white paper from the government was trailed last week on skills for jobs. It's going to give employers a direct role in designing new qualifications. But will employers be able to respond? Mel Sims spots a flaw, and her thought for the week. This episode is all about the challenge that lies at the heart of the government's approach. And a special guest, Kevin Rowan from the TUC, who heads up the TUC's campaign on skills and union education, talks about the campaign to change the government's mind about cutting entirely funding to the Union Learning Fund. Lots of campaign work on this already, but if you're new to the debate, make sure you're sitting down with a cuppa before listening. It's a terrible illustration of... As the saying goes, cutting off your nose to spite your face. But first,
1: here's Josiah with his weekly Radical Roundup. Thousands of European key workers risk losing their right to live in the UK this year, as the June deadline for applying to the EU settlement scheme fast approaches. A new report from the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants shows that thousands of EU care workers are at risk of slipping through the cracks and losing their right to live in the UK overnight when the scheme ends. The report found that one in seven care workers surveyed online did not know or weren't sure what the EU settlement scheme was and one in three care workers didn't know about the deadline to apply. Labour has responded with anger to allegations that DVLA staff in Swansea were told to come into work amid a mass Covid outbreak there. Jim McMahon MP, Labour's shadow transport secretary, said it was a source of shame that a government office had effectively become a Covid-19 super spreader hub, putting lives at risk. Allegations there include employees being coerced into turning off test and trace apps and given warnings for taking time off sick. New figures from the Crown Prosecution Service show that 1,700 people were charged with assaulting an emergency worker in ways linked to COVID in the six months prior to October last year. Examples included emergency workers being coughed on or spat at. The GMB union, which represents many ambulance workers, has warned that the true number of assaults would have been much higher due to underreporting. New polling has shown a strong public appetite for extensive government action to reduce poverty and inequality and help those in receipt of benefits. A survey carried out by Opinion with Compassion in Politics, a campaign group, found that over half of people want the government to extend the Equality Act to include socioeconomic inequalities. And two thirds of people want to see benefit payments at a level that guarantees recipients can pay their bills and buy food. And finally, Unite members at Heathrow Airport will take fresh strike action next month in the increasingly bitter dispute over the company's decision to fire and rehire its entire workforce. The workforce took four days of strike action last December and have now announced that they will take more strike action from Friday the 5th of February. A recent TUC survey suggested fire and rehire tactics like that at Heathrow had become rife during the pandemic. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup in the Union Jews podcast. Find the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org. Thanks, Simon. Back to you.
0: Thank you very much, Josiah. Each one of those headlines, you know, summarises some really challenging union issues. Look Look at the care work sector. That sector is already on its knees. The whole funding model is simply not fit for purpose. And that was before the tragic effects of COVID on care home residents and staff. A key union issue for sure, not just for care sector workers, but for all of us who have family members who depend on them. We talk about things post-COVID needing to be different to how they were before. Can there be any more desperate example? Fixing social care is a major TUC campaign. And DVLA, the Driver Vehicle Licensing Authority, just about the biggest employer in Swansea, sounds a terrible and and frightening situation. Surely government departments should be setting an example of best practice during covid Good luck to PCS colleagues in supporting their members in a really difficult situation, and it's good to see progress being made in negotiations. Fire and hire. Fire and hire round two in the case of staff working for Heathrow Airport. We've covered this story on previous episodes of Union Jews. This has all the subtlety of a flamethrower as a response to deep, existential even, resourcing challenges that can only, only be resolved by negotiation and dialogue, deeply concerning that this approach has almost become the default position of some employers. No good, no good can come of this. Not surprising, therefore, that petitions calling on government to make this practice illegal are gaining support rather quickly. And finally, Josiah's piece on poverty. Not a trade union issue, you might think. Well, I beg to differ. Well, poverty means wage levels can be undercut and the fabric of society is put under real pressure. And the number of working poor remains high, really high, as many as 4 million, say the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Now to our main debate for this episode. Here's Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow. It's all very well for the Department for Education, the DfE, to say employers should be more involved in designing new qualification. But in this week's Thought for the Week, Mel wonders if they're up to the task.
2: So this week, I've been able to think about my own research for the first time in really quite a long time, which has been excellent. And right now, I'm working with the Scottish Parliament, looking at how employers engage with policymakers around the particular issues of skills development. And that's both a practical and a theoretical interest to me, because on a practical level, policymakers often need to engage employers in decisions about work and employment to make sure that policies will, will work in the real world. But in the UK, we don't have a simple structure to do that. Workers' interests are usually represented through the union movement. But unlike many countries, there aren't similar structures for employers. And in Scotland, as well as the big three, the CBI, the Institute of Directors and the Federation of Small Businesses, there's a complicated mix of sectoral representatives, leadership groups and other forms of interest representation. In Westminster, representation is really pretty patchy. So getting a clear view from employers about particular policies can be a real challenge um, and a challenge that often frustrates policymakers. But it's also interesting from an academic perspective. So from the 1980s and 1990s, there was a real push to strengthen the right of individual employers to make decisions that they saw fit for their company, what we call in the jargon managerial prerogative. And that had the effect of being a real disincentive for employers to work together, particularly as the influence of unions and sectoral collective bargaining fell away. So broadly speaking, I think it would be fair to say that at the time that was assumed to be very much to the employer's advantage. And I think in general, it probably was. But 40 years on, we have a skills ecosystem where it can be really difficult to get a unified perspective from employers, despite policymakers really wanting it. So even this week, we saw announcements in England about the further integration of employers into post-16 education and skills policy, but really no mechanism to do that. So for theoretical reasons, as well as practical reasons, I'm looking at what we can do to strengthen that in Scotland Whether there'll be any interest in England to follow suit is very unclear, but what is clear to me is unless we can get a view from employers, it's always going to be very, very difficult to make effective policy in this area. And To some extent, it's almost inevitable that we fall behind with skills and vocational training.
0: Thanks very much, Mel. Uh, Of course, poorly organised employers have always been a problem, a challenge for unions, You need reliable representative groups on the other side of the negotiating table. But when it comes to the skills debate and the proposal by the DfE to cut funding allocated to the trade union movement to provide and boost educational opportunities to hard to reach groups, there's no shortage of robust employer support. The TUC's head of organising services and learning, Kevin Rowan, told me all about the campaign and a decision that's really hard to fathom from the Department for Education that could still be reversed elsewhere in government. We also talk about plans for a renaissance in Kevin's hometown of Barrow in Furness, a significant community but often overlooked. In the far northwest, 65,000 people, one major employer, BAE Systems, which was where Kev started his working life when it was owned by VSEL. Now, the local authority under the leadership of new chief executive Sam Plum has attracted significant new lottery funding, which could, just could, transform the town. Kevin Rowan, head of organising services and skills for the TUC. Thank you so much for making time during this exceptionally busy period to join us on the Union Jews podcast.
3: Well, it's very, I'm very pleased to to, to be with you, Simon. It's really nice to see you again. And and likewise, likewise, listeners, as
0: you may have possibly heard, the government has decided to cut its funding for for Union Learn, and it's probably a good place to start, Kev, by by just recapping what union learn does and what it's achieved over the years
3: well in my view union learn's been one of the, the the jewels in the crown of the trade union movement for just over 20 years in fact we've been working with the government to try and uh, encourage and enable trade unions to work with their members work with employers work with other partners to allow and enable uh, working people to to access learning opportunities in the workplace, it's been a real phenomenal success, in my view. And uh, when we celebrated our twentieth anniversary last year, uh, we were averaging round about two hundred thousand workers a year benefiting from Union Learn, and that means people accessing learning in all kinds of ways. It could be people who are doing career progression, uh, so uh, you know, professionals. We've got a lot of professionals in the trade union movement, so it could be people accessing career progression but actually i think we've made the most difference at the other end of the skills equilibrium where we've had people who have been very creatively disguising uh, the challenges that they face in english and maths and in digital skills and enabling them to, to to kind of pick up those skills and brush up those skills and in many in many cases getting a qualification for the first time in their life after being at work for 20 30 years so it's been a tremendous success and I think made a real difference, not just to people getting on at work, but, but people's personal lives as well. We've had all kinds of fantastic stories over a long period of time. And it, it just seems tragic that the government don't see the benefit in this. Well, I mean, I, I mean it, it, just in terms of, of not just upskilling people as
0: individuals, but increasing the skills level of the economy as a whole. Uh, I, I, and if one's talking about levelling up, then it would seem to be, well, maybe it costs too much. I mean, how much money are we talking about? From the way you're talking, it could be hundreds of millions of pounds a year.
3: Well, I mean, it, the the Union Learning Fund has had about twelve million pound, well, twelve million pounds from the government for the last five years. It's gradually been eroded from the high water mark of eighteen million pounds under Labour governments. And it's interesting that, you know, you, you kind of look at that economic impact because, you know, the return on investment to, to, to the Treasury, to the economy, it, it is phenomenal. It turns something like £15 pounds for every pound uh, that the government have put in over the whole programme. And that's fluctuated year on year. But we, you know, the, the, the ability of trade unions to lever investment from employers in this, it, I think, has been significant. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we don't always – have the opportunity to talk about a a kind of collective benefit of the work that trade unions do, and we're often Mm, at loggerheads with government, often at loggerheads with employers. In this, we've had confirmation from the Treasury that, that this is a benefit to the economy. We've had confirmation from the Treasury that no one, if you like, plays this role in any other in any other part of the economy so there's only us that can do this only trade unions that can reach those workers but it's interesting when the government made their decision and told us about it employers were queuing up to say this was a huge disappointment from barclays to Tesco's, manufacturing companies to service companies you know from retail sector to to high-tech companies we've got Employers saying this is a disgraceful, unfathomable decision because they've benefited too from the work that and we do. Just to make sure I've got my understanding right, the
0: government, I think a couple of months ago now, just just wrote to you, un, un, not, not presaged by anything, out out in the blue, and just said said actually from from March or April, no money, full stop, everything gone.
3: Yeah, and and that's really part of the disappointment too. I mean, clearly that there, there, there's a big impact on, on the union learning fund not going forward, but. The, the discourtesy with which we were treated by, by the Secretary of State, the current Secretary of State in, in the Department for Education I think is really it just feels really disappointing. We've had a really good relationship with with a conservative government and with a coalition government before that because I think most people have recognized the positive benefits of of the work that trade unions do in this space. but to get uh, you know a letter without a word of warning from from a director in the Department for Education without uh, Gavin Williamson picking up the phone to Francis and saying, no, look, you know, it, it, it's had a good run, but we, we, we're going to do things differently moving forward. We appreciate that. It'll be disappointing. But, but he didn't even have the courtesy to give us any warning. And, that, and that's really disappointing because we have worked really well and the benefits to the economy, the benefits to employers, as well as um, the massive kind of advantage to individuals from this work is something we should all be proud of including a conservative secretary of state in education
0: well it's a question i mean one would hope that the the overwhelming evidence of what works would overcome any kind of philosophical piccadillos or, or whatever so so what's the nature of the response then from from the union movement been to this you mentioned that that Lots of employers uh, have lined up to express their support for the union earning fund and their concern and opposition to, to the withdrawal of funding. What else has been has been going on, and, and what's the latest state of that campaign?
3: Yeah, well, well, certainly, you know, trade unions are are really deeply concerned uh, about the decision. Uh, like I say, as our other actors in the economy, so we, we we've been mobilising a really strong campaign. Uh, you know, we've had, thousand, you know, I think, 50,000 people now uh, signed the petition to save union learning. We've had testimonies from uh, from trade unions, but also a very kind of impassioned testimony from individuals who've benefited uh, from union learning. And that's been, you know, it's been really overwhelming in, in many, many ways for someone in, in my position. When you get, uh, you know, employers like Tesco, employers like Diageo and, and many others prepared to write to government on your behalf and say that this is a bad decision then then that's powerful but when you hear the personal testimony from people who've benefited from union loans saying look I, I'm really just upset and traumatized uh, by this decision then 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 that's very powerful and, and that campaign continues I mean unfortunately you know it seems to be falling on on deaf ears in the Department for Education. I mean so much, uh, Simon. That you know, Francis met with Gavin Williamson and and said to him, asked him the direct question: If we can persuade the Treasury to give you twelve million pounds, would you support ULF, the Union Learning Fund? And Gavin Williamson said, "No, I wouldn't," which I think is scandalous. So we've been ta- we have been talking to other members of government because there are you know other government departments and other government policy areas that. Benefit from the work that trade unions do in skills, and we are still having conversations with the business department to say how can you bring forward an industrial strategy without a huge skills skills element to it. And we're oh, hoping awesome. that yes. the uh, that, that the Department for Business will uh, will recognise the importance of this and, if you like, uh, you know, adopt a more positive approach than we've seen from the Department for Education.
0: Oh well, let's hope you you are successful there. I mean. Mm, oft, often I find my own personal experiences often I find uh, the Department for, for Business uh, and Enterprise is more pragmatic, perhaps, sometimes than the Department for Education. Although, having said that, the Secretary of State, of course, has been persuaded to change his mind on, say, food. Uh, for children, uh, for, for, for worse off children on a number of occasions, maybe there's a there's a possibility there uh, as, as well. I mean, I, it's interesting because, you, like many people, I, I wrote to my MP and said, Look, come on, this has got to be got to be a, a mistake. And, and he wrote back to me and implied that basically taxpayers money is not being invested effectively. Uh, by investment in the Union le- Learning Fund, and I, I just, I imagine it's a fairly standard letter drafted by Conservative head office to go back to uh, to constituents like me who, who who write in, but it would seem to be almost turning logic on its head. Is that part of the frustration that you've encountered in trying to open doors on this issue?
3: the The whole experience of, of this decision in the last few months has been has been in, you know so sort of vexing because. There is a direct return to the Treasury, which is no, no other kind of part of the economy can, can match really. I mean, the investment in further education probably uh, has has a minor, you know, slightly better uh, return on investment than, than, than we do. But they, of course, aren't reaching these hard-to-reach workers who, who are already in workplaces, already contributing. Employers talk about the productivity gain, that the you know the union learning air uh, brings to them. So there's there's no financial kind of Treasury taxpayers' perspective that doesn't say you know that the government should have continued to support Union Learning funds. And in fact, you know, we know from from our friends in Department for Education that the civil service advice, both from Treasury and from within DFE, was that you know, this is a good investment. It makes sense it, you know, There's no other part of the economy that can achieve what trade unions are achieving uh, in this space. And it, it's a net benefit. So the, the, there's no logical economic or skills uh, reason or productivity reason for, for pulling the rug under the Union Learning Fund. And to be honest, that's one of the most frustrating uh, aspects of this because we... We're doing a good, honest job for working people, for the, for employers, and for the economy. And it just seems an odd decision, and one that's difficult to understand, unless, of course, you conclude, as many have, that this is an obviously political decision.
0: Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's really, you know, one would be reluctant to to do that. But when you think of that figure, and it's worth quoting again and again, for every pound you invest, you get fifteen back. The exchequer gets fifteen back. It's it's kind of like it's a
3: no brainer, really, isn't it? Well, the, there's a, there's a rephrase of that sentence, Simon, isn't there? That someone with no brain has taken this decision.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, good luck. Good luck with the campaign. Um, if the government carries through on its ori- original decision, w- kind of, what would that mean in practice?
3: Well, I mean the. There are obvious kind of direct implications for, for unions who've been, you know, using that money to invest in teams and resources to to, to deliver support for for workers who, to access learning. And, and, and that's going to diminish. I mean, you know, you know, the trade union movement and the TUC just isn't in a position where we can backfill a loss of £12 million pounds to, to that work. So there's an obvious diminution of our capacity to, to support this work. And what that will mean is that the average 200,000 workers every year who benefit from these programmes will look much smaller moving forward. Now, we still have union learning reps, tens of thousands of union learning reps in workplaces, and we'll continue to support them and unions will continue to support them as best we can. But it's inevitable that the outcomes will be much, much worse. Uh, there'll be fewer people accessing that those learning opportunities. Uh, so, you know, the the benefit that we've had on productivity, the benefit, the benefit that we've had on the economy, will, will diminish. I mean, it's inevitable. And we we'll have people who you know are struggling with maths, who are struggling with English, who don't have the same digital skills that uh, the, the the new generation uh, and new mm-hmm. economy demands. Won't be able to access those skills, and they'll get further and further behind in the economy, and be stuck in the kind of jobs and uh, and and low skilled economy that they're currently in.
0: Yeah, and yet, and yet, not only the talk of levelling up, but of course the the real, the very steep COVID related increase in unemployment that that we've just seen the start of, and which unfortunately seems certain to get much worse before it gets better.
3: Well, I mean, it, it, the the timing of this on a global scale, it, it, you know, is another kind of issue that, that, that really beggars belief we're at a point in in our history where we've got the lowest ever level of employer investment in skills we've got the lowest ever level of participation in skills and probably one of the highest needs in terms of skilling and upskilling and reskilling in order to face some of the economic challenges not just from covid but also from the uh, impact of, of Brexit and the the rather thin deal we've got yeah. in there so at a time when we have the highest need we're, we're taking away one of the kind of most important tools in in enabling people to access those skills it, you know the, the, there's no angle that you can look at this that it makes sense
0: yeah indeed and for for the sake of 12 13 million quid which is an awful lot of money to you, to you and I, but uh, but you know, on an individual basis, of course, it's a it's a, a significant fortune. But in government spending, it is less than a drop in the ocean. It,
3: it it's not even a tear in the salty sea of government finances. I think it's something like not percent one percent of the DfE's budget. You know, it's a ridiculously small amount. I'd like say it's not even a rounding error. It it's not about the money. It's not about the effectiveness. We're, we're yet to be honest, to receive a logical and clear explanation from, from government about why they've made this, this decision?
0: Well, as you say, hope, hopefully the cooler heads, the wiser heads in a variety of government departments will provide an alternative home for the Union Learning Fund. Kevin, we could kind of look at other matters, b- b- perhaps. And I was, um, I didn't realize this, although I've known you, obviously, for many years. I didn't, didn't realize that uh, about your Barovian roots. And you, you started your working life in, working for Vickers in, in Barrow. I think that's, that, that's right to say. And, and I, I just wondered, this is a bit, bit left field, this. But, um, I don't know if you saw, as I did, the, the news about a Barrow regeneration project, which seemed to be quite, quite innovative. And I wondered, I wondered what you thought about, the prospects for Barrow and whether or not that project would deliver the goods for the town.
3: Well, I mean, I, I still have friends and, and family in Barrow, so I always need to be very careful about what I'm saying about my about my hometown. And living in the northeast, it's obviously good to have an alternative football team to support. So it's good to see <laughs> it's good to see Barrow back in the uh, back in the football league after uh, after a very long period, forty-eight years, I think, since yeah. since we were in the football league. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I saw the kind of cultural regeneration plans uh, for Barrow and I think it's it's long overdue, to be honest. I mean, uh, I, I do go back to, to Barrow occasionally and it is, uh, you know, it's a town that feels very industrial, feels really quite neglected from a kind of cultural perspective and Barrow's never really had a very strong cultural uh, offer it's it's been an industrial town you know obviously you know BAE still employs I think around 9,000 people in the shipyard and the supply chains so the industrial footprint in Barrow is still really really important but it's good to see the, the new, newish chief executive of the local authority has got that cultural agenda on her mind. And it, you know, that, that kind of imagination and innovation is something that Barrow, I think, has been lacking for a long time. So I hope it's successful. I hope it makes the people of Barrow feel really some warmth and some optimism. It, it, it's a, it's a town that's really struggled with COVID. It's a town that's really struggled with you know some of the uh, the negative aspects of that industrial legacy you know ill health is quite uh, common in the town those those uh, levels of economic exclusion and levels of poverty are pretty high in, in the town so if we can create some optimism and some good feeling for the people in Barrow then i th- i think that's much deserved uh, and much welcomed and and
0: also there are jobs attached to it as well the, the people forget the cultural sector can be a, a you know a very significant contributor to employment in in any town
3: uh, absolutely, absolutely, critically. I mean, I think, you know, it is one of those undervalued sectors in the economy, but generates billions in it. And obviously it's been a really tough time for the sector right across the country, you know, as people have been confined to their homes or very limited, you know, in terms of what what they can take. And certainly we, you know, my, myself and my, my family miss that that kind of cultural yeah. experience. And I think that that's felt right across. But there, there is an econo- economic benefit. But that's a sector, I think, which, you know, not only we, do we underestimate the the economic contribution, but we we underestimate in many ways the wider contribution to help us, you know, cope with the stresses of our lives, to have that sense of escapism, and, and it helps us with our mental health. Uh, so it's a really, really important contributor to, you know, to society as well as the economy, and I hope... That, you know, that, that, that Barrow really manages to up its game in that regard.
0: Absolutely. So say all of us. Kev, it's been great to see you. Thank you very much for spending time with the Union Jews podcast and best of luck with the Union Learn funding campaign because that is something that just is so, so important uh, to all of us, uh, I think, not just those who benefit directly from the courses. So, so thanks for your efforts on that.
3: Well, oh, many thanks and really lovely to see you, Simon. All the very best.
0: My thanks to Kevin and you can find all the links and signposting you'll need in the companion blog to this podcast, which is over on the makesyouthink.com site. And thanks too to Kevin for pointing out the vitally important role that the cultural sector plays in all our lives and the ongoing crisis. And it really, I mean, it really is a crisis, let's face it in that sector. And the crisis is not just that venues can't open because of the COVID restrictions. It's because so many of the people who work in the sector fall through the gaps in the government support network of payments and allow- allowances and so on so all power to the great campaign being run by Beck 2 equity the musicians union and other unions with members in this sector to plug those gaps and keep the sector alive in these darkest of times <laughs> That's just about it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with us. I hope it's made you think. I hope it's given you something to ponder on, something to discuss. If you've been directly affected by any of the issues involved, if you've got a view, if there are things you think we should cover, people you think we should talk to, do drop us a line. You can contact the show by email on unionjews that makes you think.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. And if you have the opportunity, please, to rate us on the podcast platform of your choice, that would be... Very much appreciated. Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal through which you can access this and about 70 other trade union-related shows. You can access that portal at labourradionetwork.org. We're taking a week off to gather our thoughts and our breath, but in two weeks' time, we'll be back when our special guest will be David Little, who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Mediation Group, TCM. And he's mediated in more industrial disputes than most of us have had hot dinners. So it'll be fascinating to get his insight on why mediation is sometimes the only way forward and, and why sometimes it's not. Do join us then. In the meantime, my thanks to Mel, to Josiah, to Kevin, to you, of course, for listening. And it just leaves me to say that whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, if you have to go there, please do stay safe. Let's look after each other. And I'll see you next time on the Union Jews podcast. Bye for now. The Union Jews podcast is
2: presented by me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. It is a Makes You Think production.